This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts and welcome to this milestone episode. 30 episodes. How did we get here? So for this episode we're going to take a breather from the Summer of Sharks just for one episode. And because it's episode 30 we're going to do 30 films. We're not actually going to do 30 films <laughs> but we're going to do films with 30 in the title Later on, we're going to be looking at Jennifer Garner in 13 going on 30. But on the other side of this, we're going to be taking a look at Vampire Movie 30 Days of Night. As promised a few seconds ago, the first movie that we're going to be covering in episode 30 is David Slade's 30 Days of Night. 30 Days of Night is an action horror thriller vampire movie which was released in 2007. As Darren said, it was directed by David Slade who had previously directed the film Hard Candy and has also directed a couple of Black Mirror episodes. The movie was shot in New Zealand, but it's set in Alaska. So um, we're going to go over to our trusty friends at IMDb just to give you a little rundown of what this movie is about. This synopsis was written by Ahmet Kozan. I hope I pronounced that correctly. This is the story of an isolated Alaskan town that is plunged into darkness for a month each year when the sun sinks below the horizon. As the last rays of light fade, the town is attacked by a bloodthirsty gang of vampires bent on an uninterrupted orgy of destruction. Only the small town's husband and wife sheriff team stand between the survivors and certain destruction. So the movie stars Josh Hartnett and Melissa George as the married couple who um, take charge of the situation that goes on in their small, sleepy Alaskan town, which is kind of plunged into a, a lockdown of some sort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's, uh, I mean, we're not trying to get to siege and pandemic type movies, but this kind of has that element in because it's a cut-off settlement. Everybody has disappeared for the 30 days who wants to get out of the fact that, that it's going to be night for a month. But what the, what the remaining people don't know is that a group of bloodthirsty vampires are closing in. The communications are cut off and it's a fight for survival over those four and a bit weeks. I remember seeing this, not at the cinema actually, I, I remember it being at the cinema, but I picked it up on DVD a bit uh, further down the line because a lot of people had said how good it was. And yeah, it is a pretty good vampire movie. I think that it's more in line with things like Near Dark than something like Twilight. Actually, David Sled did direct one of the Twilight movies, so that's a bit of a left turn. But anybody that goes in 
expecting romantically involved sparkly vampires who've got all sorts of woes about living and stuff. Well, I think the vampires in Twilight would be torn to pieces by the bunch that you get in 30 Days a Night because they're mean. <laughs> Definitely. I hadn't realised he directed Twilight films, well, so that's an interesting contrast. Um, but yeah, the vampires in this, they're very monstrous. Basically, it's no holds barred. They will rip their victims to pieces. As you say, extremely bloodthirsty. So this was the first time that I'd seen this movie. Um, I was aware of it, but it's one that I hadn't got around to seeing. But I really loved it. I was pleasantly surprised. I think it's quite underrated. It's a very atmospheric movie. The cinematography is absolutely beautiful. I think that's one of its most striking elements. And it really captures the sense of isolation well in amongst that. Um, yeah, it's just it's just astonishing to look at. It was orig originally conceived as, um, well, it was a screenplay to start with, and it was rejected from studios for quite a long time. So the writer, Steve Niles, then wrote it as a comic book. And then the original studio that rejected the screenplay produced his comic book version, which is the one that we get in here. And I can definitely sense the comic book elements in there. And it also, to me, has a little bit of a video game vibe as well. I think it's just kind of reminiscent of that era where things were quite popular, like Resident Evil and uh, movies that were, like had originated from games. It kind of has that vibe to it. But it's a very eerie film, as I say, very atmospheric. It's a quite a slow burn as well, but it doesn't like drag either. I felt like I definitely enjoyed the suspenseful elements of it, where it was heading. I mean, there are predictable elements in it, as there are with all horror movies, but um, it's very, very enjoyable. I also would like to point out as well that how much similarity it has to Stephen King's Salem's Lot. And that is um, one of my favourite Stephen King novels. And that's why I think um, I enjoyed it so much because it was very reminiscent of the elements from Salem's Lot with the sleepy town and um, the um, inhabitants um, mysteriously disappearing and that kind of thing. The head vampire in this movie is actually called Marlow as well, which is, I think, an obvious homage <laughs> to Marlow from the Salem's Lot novel um, slash film. He's played by Danny Houston and um, he's appeared in American Horror Story. So um, a nice connection there as well. Yeah, really intimidating, scary vampire vibe going with him as well. So, And they, the vampires, well, they have this like really kind of piercing scream that they do which is really unsettling. And I, re I really like that because, as I said, it kind of embodies that monstrous element about them. There's nothing seductive about these vampires. They're not like the Christopher Lee-type vampire. They're grungy. They're covered in blood. They've got fangs everywhere. They've got really razor-sharp nails that they used to slash people with. They're really, really down-and-dirty vampires. Which is why I say, you know, the kind of the near dark end of the spectrum. I mean, they're even more grungy than the near dark vampires, which is quite refreshing, really. It's, there's no, you know, there's no trying to seduce people. They're just there to feed on people. And Danny Houston is great as the lead vampire. He's got this sense of menace about him. If you like your vampires to move slowly in the shadows and creep up on people this isn't going to float your boat because they 
these vampires are almost superhuman. They can chase cars. They're jumping out on people. They they're falling from the sky at one point. It's it is that sort of movie. There are a couple of little inconsistencies with the vampires and how they move because at the start when they're taking the victims, they seem unstoppable and they come out of the shadows and you hardly see them. As the movie wears on a bit, they allow the heroes to get away a couple of times. But I guess that you can't really look into that too much in terms of plot because it's very pulpy and it does have that comic book sensibilities. And if they were just plucking people from the streets and then you would just like hear something and then they'd just disappear and then they were dead then that wouldn't be much of a movie you have to have some kind of fight going on as the heroes know a little bit more about them so they get their asses kicked pretty much in act one but as they start to understand how these vampires work then they do exact a little bit of revenge as the movie goes on there's a very useful bit of ultraviolet kit that's used at one point which which kind of simulates the sunlight and does horrendous damage to one of the vampires so it's full of nice little tricks while it still nods to classic vampire lore as well now the poems is, um, from the humans are generally pretty good josh hartman's a good leading man melissa george is doing it for the sisters she's a powerful female character which is good to see. She takes absolutely no shit whatsoever through the entire movie. It's a movie that I think it plays quite a bit, 30 Days of Night. I don't think it's a forgotten movie. I think it's had a bit of longevity and people still remember it. Uh, Interestingly enough, I think the original director along the line was going to be Sam Raimi. Now he's a producer in this. So it's interesting to note what the movie might have been with Sam Raimi. I think it had probably been almost as dark with Sam Raimi. It might have had a little bit more humour in than David Slade injects, but it's certainly something that you could see Sam Raimi attaching himself to. It's got that sense of darkness about it, even though it doesn't have quite as much fun as things like Drag Me Tell and uh, the Evil Dead movies. Yeah, I think if Sam Raimi had directed this, it would have been a bit more wackier than it turns out. It's got very much like a serious tone. Yeah, it really does work. It's it's. Um, I, I don't think I would have wanted it to be too much on, on the uh, comedy side, really. Going back to Josh Hartnett and Melissa George, I think their characters are quite equal as well, which is nice to see. It's like neither like overpower the other or anything like that. And they, you know, even though they're, characters are estranged they're a married couple but they're estranged it's like they do put their differences aside to work together to save the inhabitants of the town obviously you get some people as you do in horror movies that decide oh i'm just going to do something rash and ridiculous and run out of the safe zone and get myself killed you have all that in it and you just think well it's their own fault (laughs) (laughs) yeah true true and the gore in this is I mean, it's not extreme, but there's some pretty bloody stuff going on and some of it is quite brutal. There's a sequence where the vampires are using one of the humans as bait and that's just incredibly nasty because when their scheme doesn't quite work out, then they take it out on the poor woman that they've been using as bait and they surround her in this circle and they're just attacking her from all sides and it's it's really, really nasty. 
it doesn't go particularly over the top because it's a 15 certificate in the UK. Now, interestingly enough, though, the DVD is an 18 certificate, although it's exactly the same version. Bit of a weird one, that, that uh, cinema audiences were treated as you could see it if you were 15 and over. The DVD buyer, it was adults only, which is, it's, it was a bit strange. It might have been something to do with the extras, but I don't remember there being anything particularly over the top about the extras either. So it was just one of those quirky things where movies had different ratings on disc than in the cinema. Mm, that's really interesting. And there's no explanation for it whatsoever. Just same movie. Just... Yep, same movie. Yep. And I think um, back in 2007, obviously we were at the height of the Saw era as well. So I think in terms of gore horror movies, wanted to push the boundaries because they knew that that's what um, audiences were hungry for. Excuse the pun. <laughs> yeah. Looking at the ratings of this movie, um, IMDb have given it a 6.6 .6 out of 10, and on Rotten Tomatoes it has a 56% audience score. I think it deserves a little bit more love than that. I think it's not an average movie. It's a very well-made movie. As I said, Like it is really beautiful to look at. As I say, you've got this beautiful cinematography um, of the New Zealand landscape, and then got this like horrendous situation going on and all this blood and gore as well so it kind of contrasts really well but it, it just looks amazing and it's well performed um, as I say it has some like obvious predictable elements in it but you can forgive it for that because um, you know this is a vampire movie and it knows what it wants to be there's no pretense there or anything so I think yeah while it's not like the best movie ever made in the whole wide world what is that's obviously up for debate but it's i think it definitely is above average so i don't agree with the ratings um, of imdb and rotten tomatoes yeah i i particularly like it i like the way it builds up it gives you a good idea about how the town's set up in the first 20 minutes it introduces you to the characters properly it doesn't drop you straight into the horror it kind of drip feeds the first couple of kills so you're not really sure what's going on but it does get more and more nasty as it's going along. They also introduce a piece of machinery called, uh, it's the, I think it's called the Muffin Monster, which is this huge, horrible-looking, crushing bit of machinery that's just got loads and loads of gears and nasty, sharp-looking bits to tear things to pieces. And you think, well, somebody's going to be going in that before the credits roll. And guess what? Somebody does go in that. <laughs> definitely it's there for a reason and even though you know it's coming it still makes you cringe yeah but um as well without giving away any spoilers i really like the ending of the film as well i thought it was really well done really poignant i don't think it could have ended any other way i really really love that about it so um yeah it's as i say really really well developed from beginning to end yeah absolutely it's a pretty cool ending because you get to this point where there's a realisation that there's a way out of it, but it's probably not the ideal way out of it. And again, without giving too much away, the ending gives you a little bit of hope without completely copping out. It is in keeping with the rest of the movie. It's not incredibly downbeat, but it doesn't have that massively feel-good relief. Oh, that's, you know, that's great. Everybody got out of this. You know, the menace is gone. I mean, it doesn't leave any loose ends as such, but there's enough space there for you to wonder about what's coming next without it completely ruining what's gone before. 
you can take the final scene as the ending or you can take the final scene as perhaps a platform to something else in the future. I think there was a sequel to this, which I haven't seen, but it, it stands on its own as a piece of work. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end and you won't get to the end and think, well, you know, where's this going next? There is a there is a definite point at which the plot comes to a stop. Yeah, it's very well crafted, really strong storytelling. So yeah, 30 Days of Night is available to watch completely for free on Amazon Prime. So go check it out if you haven't or if you already have and it's been a while and you want to revisit it, definitely go for it. Yeah, definitely worth a revisit in my book. And to celebrate our 30th episode, we are going to take a look at another movie which has 30 in its title. This is a romantic fantasy comedy from 2004, 13 Going on 30, starring Jennifer Garner and Mark Ruffalo. Could not be more different to 30 Days of Night. Don't say we don't bring you contrast on this podcast. Right, so let's go for the synopsis of this one again. Going to IMDb, and this one is from Pop Diva Princess Three Thousand. <laughs> that is an actual user on IMDb. I'd love to find out who Pop Diva Princess Three Thousand is. After total humiliation at her thirteenth birthday party, Jenna Rink wants to just hide until she's thirty. Thanks to some wishing dust, Jenna's prayer has been answered. With a knockout body, a dream apartment, a fabulous wardrobe, an athlete boyfriend, a dream job, and superstar friends, this can't be a better life. Unfortunately, Jenna realises that this is not what she wanted. The only one that she needs is her childhood best friend Matt, a boy that she thought destroyed her party. But when she finds him, he's a grown-up, and not the same person that she knew. <laughs> Great synopsis. So um, if any of you remember the movie Big from the 80s starring Tom Hanks, of course you do, then this is essentially the chick flick version of that. First time viewing for me. This was a film I think I actively avoided. I remember seeing the trailer for it in the cinema when it came out and I was like, nah, not for me. But then, you know, in hindsight, it's a very popular film. Lots of people really enjoy it. So I thought, obviously, we're celebrating our 30th episode. Let's go for it. And I feel I didn't really miss out. <laughs> this movie wasn't my bag at all. It's very cheesy, very girly. Some of the moments in it did make me cringe a lot. So I'm sorry to fans of 13 going on 30, but th this just wasn't for me. I have nothing against it. I do feel it does fit in with our strand of ambitious women and romantic complications, but it's a lot better than the other stuff we have covered in that category. So I didn't hate this movie, but I didn't love it at all. Kind of indifferent. That's that's how I, I feel about it. That's fair enough. I have seen it before. It's not a movie that's been a big fixture in my film collection, but for somebody who has written about things like um, Cannibal Holocaust. It's probably a bit of a surprise that I do actually quite like 13 going on 30. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of Jennifer Garner anyway. I think the cast does a lot to help this movie. The cast is very, very good. So you've got Jennifer Garner playing quite a convincing 13-year-old who's trapped in the 30-year-old woman's body. So she she sells all of that. She's quite innocent. She's quite geeky. She's quite clumsy. But it's not forced upon you like it would be in some other movies. You've got Mark Ruffalo as the romantic lead. And it does seem that in this one, they've got a bit of chemistry. It does feel like that they spark off each other and they do actually like each other. And I think that was true on and offset. I think they got on really well in this movie. Elsewhere, you've got Judy Greer. Again, love Judy Greer in pretty much everything. Um, you've got Andy Serkis, uh, I mean, Gollum, but not playing Gollum. He's the very camp magazine editor who is constantly in a tiz about how they're losing to the competition. So he gets a few good laughs in this movie. But like you say, yeah, there are some cringeworthy moments in this. I think I'm going to probably mention the one that you may have cringed at the most. There is a thriller dance sequence in this. Now, even when this was supposed to have taken place, because it's a 1987 movie that jumps to 2004, were people still doing the thriller dance in 1987? It seems it seems a bit late. I think if it had been like a Halloween theme party, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, it it just seemed very random. Um, but I guess yeah, I think Michael Jackson's greatest hits had come out around that time, so maybe yeah, that possibly. Was what going for. Yeah, and obviously, I think, you know, for a long while, Michael Jackson's songs did, like, get everybody on the dance floor. When I was watching it, I was thinking, I bet Darren's going to hate this because it's going to give him, he's all that vibes. But I was actually shocked to discover that he really enjoyed this thriller dance routine, even though I thought it was appalling. And allegedly, Mark Ruffalo nearly dropped out of the movie because of this sequence. Yeah, apparently he really didn't want to do it because he was, I think he was quite embarrassed to do it. And I don't think he thought he was going to bring his A game to this because I'm guessing that Mark Ruffalo isn't much of a dancer. And, and certainly if he was a bit of a dancer, to do, to reenact the thriller routine, he probably thought, you know what, this is a bit beyond me. But according to the trivia about this movie, Jennifer Garland was so enthusiastic about this sequence that... He actually got through it because it was his. I mean, it's first day on the movie, and you have to do this. So it's a bit of a leap of faith. It's like first thing. It's like there isn't. It isn't even a dramatic sequence. It's like right, you're going to do the thriller dance move on the floor. So I can I can understand his trepidation at this. Once he got that out of the way, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't look nervous in the movie, apart from the fact that it's meant to be a little bit awkward, and it's a party full of office people and their friends. So. It's not meant to be perfectly choreographed, and it isn't. So it's kind of like that sort of disco dancing where you're, you're out with your mates and something comes on that you recognise and you all go and drunkenly try to dance to whatever's on there. So it's it's got that kind of vibe to it. As a set piece in the movie, I mean, it's probably it's probably the most memorable, not for any sort of reasons other than the fact that it just seems a bit incongruous. It's just a way of enlivening this particularly dull promotional party now. I guess they've got to do something to move the plot along. And let's be honest, I mean, 13 going on 30, it's not really got forensically detailed and accurate plotting. I mean, 
I'm sure that the way that magazines are run is nothing like it's portrayed in this movie because they seem to be able to change style and change editorial policy on a whim. And it just seems to be, right, we can do this in two weeks. And I was sitting there thinking, but could you really do that in two weeks? I'm not sure you could. But there may be people out there who have got more experience of magazine editorials who will come back and say, yeah, of course you can do that. But it's not the sort of movie where you're going to look at that and think, you know what, that couldn't happen. Because, to be perfectly honest, the whole crux of the plot is that some wishing dust propels this 13-year-old girl 17 years into the future. So, like, that's going to happen either. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a movie that you have to suspend your disbelief to. It is meant to be feel-good and, as say, chick flick. It's fine. I can understand why people enjoy it, because sometimes you want that bit of escapism. So the character of Jenna turns 30, 13 minutes precisely into the film. So we first encounter her as an awkward, geeky teenager. She's trying to get in with the popular clique, which is basically very Heathers-esque or Mean Girls-esque. It's, it's just that type of trope. The high school is one big walking trope. The popular girls are a big walking trope. She's best friends with this boy who's a bit geeky as well, and she's kind of willing to push him aside to get in with the in crowd. So it's it's that kind of thing going on. And then there's a party and everything kind of goes disastrously wrong for her. Um, and then, yeah, this wishing dust randomness happens. And then suddenly she is 30 years old. Is it 30, flirty and thriving? Yes. <laughs> and um, then discovers that because of the path that her life has gone down from that moment, it's not exactly what she envisioned. It, it's not very like gritty in the slightest or anything like, but there are things that happen where I think she's meant to be a bit more ruthless. She's not as like nice to people around her. She's very demanding. There's things like, oh, she's had a fling with a married guy and things that she would never imagine herself doing. But it doesn't really put that in your face as such. And it's just how she's trying to navigate being an adult. There's one kind of really creepy moment where she chats up a 13-year-old. Yep. <laughs> because <laughs> um, her friend says, oh, this guy is checking you out. And then she doesn't realise that the guy she's talking about is actually this grown man and then goes to chat up this uh, little boy, which is a bit like, oh, God, this is, yeah, is this meant to be funny? It's very much a product of its time. It's very, very much early 2000s like teen comedy vibes i don't think it's i suppose i don't like to use this word as such um but it's not obviously the most woke film you would get i think if it was made now it would be a lot different i think it, it would be kind of pointing things out a lot more than this one actually does i think it's got that naivety there's a bit there's um kind of a gay joke in it later on which i thought was used as a punchline, which i didn't find very amusing but as you say it's like it it is a product of its time. It's not relevant to kind of how views and attitudes are changing nowadays. Yeah, I mean, generally, it does skirt around all the potentially offensive stuff. The bit where she chats up the 13-year-old, logically, it's what she would do because she keeps forgetting she's a 30-year-old woman. And I think that is played for laughs, but it doesn't quite work. It just comes across as being slightly icky. In other places, the fact that 
she's got this ice hockey player boyfriend who is doing her striptease for her at one point. I mean, that could have been unpleasant, but the way that you skirt around that makes it quite amusing, and it's all very innocently done, so all that sort of potentially dangerous stuff that they could have dealt with is pushed to the side, and it's a lot more fluffier. It's going for the fantasy rom-com element. I mean, even the central relationship between Jenna and Matt as adults is very, very innocently done. There's no there's no hint that they're going to jump into bed at all throughout the movie. It's a very, very chaste relationship, and it's based on them just liking each other's company, which is quite refreshing in one way. But if you're expecting something a bit raunchier, even though it's got a 12 certificate, I, I can't think of why it would be a 12, to be perfectly honest. I don't think there was anything particular in it. There's a couple of mildly suggestive lines of dialogue, but nothing that would offend anybody. So I don't really know where it's coming from. Now, one thing I do like about this is the casting choices between the younger versions of Jenna and Lucy and the older versions, especially Lucy, because they've got mini Judy Greer down to a T. It's such good casting. You almost wouldn't have had to know she grew up into Judy Greer. You could see her and just think, Judy Greer will be playing her as an adult, which is really, really great casting. Also, it's got a decent soundtrack as well. Anything that's got the Go-Go's on it gets my vote. Get a bit of Belinda Carlisle on her own as well. And you also get Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar, which I stayed to sing along to over the end credits. Great track. Yeah, the soundtrack is really good. If you love, like, 80s pop, there's also Jesse's Girl by uh, Rick Springfield as yeah. well. And allegedly he attended the premiere of the movie because he was so happy that his song was included in the film. I agree with you so much about that, the casting choices. Um, they did get it down perfectly. You could definitely imagine those kids growing up into the adult actors. Um, when the film was first shot, though, apparently they had different child actors playing Jennifer Garner's character and Mark Ruffalo's character. And it didn't sit well with test audiences, so they recast it and reshot it. But apparently, if you have the DVD, you can actually watch the um, original scenes that they filmed. So that would be quite interesting just to see the difference and why it didn't quite work. That's cool. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to rush out and buy the DVD. I mean, I'm a, I like this movie, but do I want to own it on DVD? Even though it's got Jennifer Garner in it, I'm not so sure. Also, one of the six chicks, the cool ones at school, one of those, in fact, the one that gets bumped when Jenna becomes one of the six chicks, the one that gets bumped is Brie Larson. Yep, and there's quite a lot of actors in this movie that went on to star in Marvel-related movies as well. So, obviously, Jennifer Garner was in Daredevil and Elektra, which is not part of the current Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it was still early Marvel days. Then, of course, Mark Ruffalo is the Hulk, and then Judy Greer's been in the Ant-Man films, and then Brie Larson's Captain Marvel. So that's quite cool that it has this, like, Marvel connection to it. Yeah, just pure coincidence, obviously, just how the casting worked. Also, they cast Jennifer Garner, Mark Ruffalo, and Judy Greer as the original choices for those roles as well. So that's pretty cool that they got them first time around. It's not 
one of those things on the IMDb trivia where it's like so and so and so and so was um, cast for this role, and yeah, you just don't have that with this film. So that's interesting that they got their first choices. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it's a fluffy light film to watch. It's you know, it's not that taxing to get through really, but I don't know. There's just something about it I just didn't quite click with and. I don't know even when I was 14 when it came out whether I would have clicked with it then because I just remember looking at the trailer and being like, nope, not interested. Yeah, I mean, it's sweet, but it's very, very corny. And I think it depends on whether you can take how saccharine it gets, especially in the last 20 minutes. There's there's real overload of sugar in the last act. When the one thing you can say about the movie is that the darkest part of it is that Mark Ruffalo's character has a blue velvet poster in his apartment. And that pretty much is the darkest part of the movie. Is the, it's a poster for a completely different movie. Then you kind of know where this is aiming it at. It's not going to change the world. This It's 90 odd minutes of fun entertainment, which you probably won't remember for too long afterwards. But I thought the performances were decent. It's got a couple of decent laughs in it quite a feel-good movie so I guess it might have been the perfect antidote to all the horrors that I'd been watching recently so it might have caught me a little bit off guard because I'd been watching so many people getting terrorized and eviscerated and god knows what else that I actually put this on and thought you know what life isn't so bad it's quite cool (laughs) yeah I can uh, see where you're coming from there it's just a nice break from watching people get ripped to pieces or stabbed (laughs) whatever but yeah no I think for me yeah just it just not not my cup of tea unfortunately um it's a coming of age movie as well very much so not the best in the genre it's not exactly going to be like stand by me or anything like that but it's um yeah it's, it's just it's just okay but I think there are better movies in the genre than that because I think it's quite interesting with me with the rom-com subgenre Certain movies do land with me and I love them, but it's very rare. And I was just thinking back to, at the time, I would have watched the film Freaky Friday with Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis. And I revisited that last year as well on Disney+. Plus. Really liked that film. And it's kind of the same type of plot, really. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think maybe if it had a bit more edge to it, maybe I preferred the actors in that. I don't know. But yeah, this one didn't, land with me at all so you know i don't regret watching it i'm glad i've finally seen it but i doubt i'll be going back to it at any point that's a fair assessment i think it is it is so cutesy that some people are going to absolutely love it for its lack of edge and some people are just going to run screaming from the room i mean i was neither but as i say you know maybe it was the time at which i watched it that it caught me off guard and I was taken in by its rather naive charms. And, you know, I'm a massive fan of Jennifer Garner anyway, so I guess if Jennifer Garner was in a movie reciting the phone book, I'd be thinking, oh, yeah, I must watch that. <laughs> so are you all surprised that Darren enjoyed this movie more than I did? It's definitely flipped everything on its head a little bit on this podcast. So, um, yeah, let us know your thoughts on 13 going on 30. If it's a movie that you enjoy, is it a cult classic in your opinion? Is it one that um, you revisit often or did you absolutely detest it? We'd love to know. Let us know in the comments.
I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 30 of the HD Movie Podcast. As ever, thanks for listening. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. Let us know your thoughts on the films that we cover. And if you have any suggestions for future episode content, let us know. Drop us a line. So, next, as sure as night follows day, episode 31 follows episode 30. And we're going to be going back to the Summer of Sharks. And we're going into sequel territory. A few episodes ago, we introduced Summer of Sharks with possibly the king of all shark movies, Jaws. Next time, we're going to be covering 1978's Jaws 2. And I'm very intrigued because I have to admit to you guys, I have never seen any of the Jaws sequels. So this is going to be a bit of a voyage of discovery for me, as you said, off recording. (laughs) So, yeah, looking forward to checking that out and giving you our thoughts. I'm extremely surprised that you haven't seen any of the sequels, so I'm not going to say anything in advance of you watching it. Should be an interesting discussion next time. So until then, cheers everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.